Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. As we start 2024, what I'd love all of us to get at the start of this year is I'd love us to just, to just start the year and get a clearer picture of who God is. Like, over Christmas and New Year, like, we didn't see the sun, like, once. I mean, I mean, it really was, you know, you're like, where has the sun gone? I mean, it wasn't cold, it wasn't too cold, but just the sun gone, and then all of a sudden today, beautiful, no clouds, sun is out. And I kind of want 2024 to be a little bit like that, that we just see God clearly for who he is. Because so often in life, things just cloud over, things get busy, things come in and just distract us. And I want us to, to see clearly who God is, but I also want us to see at the start of this year clearly who we are, and particularly who we are in God's eyes. You know, what we, who we are. You know, I think sometimes we can think I'm this and this and this, but the reality is in terms of God's eyes, we are loved by God. We are his children. And I want us to really to know that in our hearts. So that's what I'd love to see at the start of this year, that we see really clearly, like we see the sun on a day like today, who God is, and we see really clearly who we are in God's eyes. Do you want to see that? Are you up for that? Give me an amen. Give me a nod. That, that's really just to check you're all awake, really, more than anything else. Now, one of the things we're going to do to kind of help that is we're going to do a we're going to do a six, seven weeks sermon series on prayer. I'm not starting it today. Today's going to be a little bit different, but we're going to start that next week. We're also going to be focusing on prayer in our community groups. We're going to be going through the prayer course, which is run by Pete Gregg, which is a really brilliant course on prayer. I know some of you have done it, but it's just a fantastic, it has a fantastic course of just bringing us closer to God. And, and the reason I want us to do the prayer course is not so that we get more answers to prayer. That may be a result. But that, what I said earlier, that we would see God more clearly. We would be stronger in our relationship with God and our faith in God. So if you're someone who goes to community group, you know, like once every four weeks or once every six weeks, like I would encourage you if there's any time of the year where you can, you know, have it to like from one in four to one in two or like from one in two to one in one, like this is the time to do it. The prayer course is brilliant. I've done it before. It really is good. So try and get along to that. Now, also just to say, because it's a course, that, that always makes it sound long, okay? Now, community groups aren't going to be longer because we're doing a course, okay? It's a 20-minute video and four questions after it. Like, that's it, okay? So community group will not be longer, okay? It's not like, right, I'm going to this. It's going to end at half 10 on a Wednesday night. No. So just to say that. But I really encourage us, let's to get into this. Let's get to group. Let's engage with this this, this year. Now, um, for those of you who know me, I went to university in Aberdeen, uh, which is way north Scotland, third biggest city in Scotland. And I, I used to live very close to Aberdeen's football stadium, Pataudry. It's about 22,000 seats. I think we've got a slide of here. That's Pataudry. That's Aberdeen's football stadium. Um, and often I go to watch games there, um, but for big games, when Aberdeen were playing Rangers and Celtic, they're the two big teams in Scotland, it was very difficult to get tickets. So what I'd do is I'd go up on, on, on the hill next to the ground. If you, if you look just 
No, back, back again, back again. The hill just there, at the back, just in front of the seat, that's called Broad Hill. And what I do with those games that you couldn't get tickets for is I'd go and climb up on that hill, all right? And I'd stand on there and I'd watch the game from there. Now, normally when you went up there, there'd be 20 or 30 other people all standing up there with the same idea. And right, three of the four of them would have a radio and they'd be listening to the game on the radio. Now, the next slide is what the view looks like from up there, okay? So, <laughs> you can see the pitch. Now, I'm not great at fractions, but you can see a fraction of the pitch. You can see neither go, but you can see the pitch and you can see the ball every now and again, okay? Now, the only problem was you just couldn't see the whole pitch. Now, nobody was complaining because it was a free ride up there. No one was paying any money. The problem was when a goal was scored. Because when a goal was scored, you knew someone had scored because you could hear all the fans in the stadium cheering and going crazy. But you were never totally sure which team had scored. And often we'd be up on the hill cheering, be like, yeah, my team scored. And then someone on the radio would be like, Oh, no, actually, it's the other team that scored. I'm like, oh, gosh, we thought we were 1-0 up. Now we're 1-0 down. This is terrible. But, you know, it was, it was our, little, our, our little perch up in the hill there. It was, it was okay, but we couldn't see the full picture. And, and as I said, that's what I want us to do this morning. I want to take us to a different viewpoint so that we can see a much clearer picture of who God is and who, who we are. Okay, that's the things I want us to do. And the, and the viewpoint we're going to go to this morning is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Isaiah 6, 1 to 9, which is this amazing vision the prophet Isaiah has of God on his throne in heaven. So we're going to read it. Before we do, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background to the passage, because often it's one of those passages you just read and there's no background to it whatsoever. Okay, so background. It's the year... 740 BC, so those of you who want to do some sums, that's like 2,740 something years ago, all right? After three years of siege, the city of Arphad, which is a city 100 miles north of, of Jerusalem, which would be in what we would know today as modern-day Syria, the city of Arphad finally falls to King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. So he is the king of the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful empire in the world at that time. Now, after the bloodbath that ensued after the city fell, this king, Tiglath-Pileser, turns his greedy eyes towards the next place he is going to conquer. And the next place he's going to conquer is Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to be the next place the Assyrians were going to attack. They knew it. The, the people in Jerusalem knew it. Everyone knew it. Now, so they're getting ready. But to make matters worse for the people of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, just when the people needed him most, the king of Judah, the southernmost part of, of Israel, the king of Judah, King Uzziah, died. Now, for those of you who don't know, King Uzziah was a, was a strong leader. He was a, a godly leader. He was a godly king. And also, most importantly, he was a military genius. Okay, this guy had won wars against the Philistines. He'd won wars against the Ammonites. He'd won wars against the Arabs. But just when the Israelites needed them most, just when the Assyrians are about to attack, he goes and dies, you know, a bit inconvenient. And, and the story of how he died is quite interesting. Well, I find it interesting anyway. He basically, he, he barged into the, the inner room of the temple uninvited. And as a result, he got leprosy and he died of the leprosy. Now, that's an aside. But basically, he left his throne to a far lesser man. The country was in big, big 
trouble. The Assyrians were coming, and they didn't have their military genius king anymore. One of the prophets in Jerusalem at this time was a guy called Isaiah. Yes, Keith, you're on it. And he responds to this bad news by going to worship in the temple courtyard. And when he's there in the temple courtyard, he sees this amazing vision from God. And that is what Isaiah 6 is. And that's what we're going to read. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here, I am, here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. And I just feel this gives us a, a, just a great viewpoint to see much more clearly, firstly, who... God is, and secondly, who? Who we are, yeah, through the eyes of Isaiah. So firstly, who God is. Um, Max, uh, a couple of months ago, comes to me, my six-year-old, and he says, Dad, can God click his fingers and draw at the same time? Yes, Max, he can. He's like, wow, that's hard. He's like, uh, starts thinking, he's like, Dad, can God run backwards, like really fast? I was like, yes, he can. I was like, wow, that is really hard. God must be really amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. Dad, can God do a somersault while clicking his fingers? I was like, yeah, he can do that. I was like, whoa, God's amazing. I was like, yeah, God is amazing. Well, most people don't use those reasons to say God is amazing. But yes, he is amazing. But it was interesting, the questions that Max had, like what he was trying to do was very simply trying to understand more about who God is. That's what he was trying to do. And this passage tells us lots about who God is. Firstly, I don't know if you notice, it says he's high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple. I just picture that. I mean, that's like just no part of, like just imagine this room, like no part of the floor is visible because the train of his robe covers every inch of the entire room. It covers it all. I mean, that is pretty grand. And then it says he's seated on a throne. Notice he's not seated on a chair. Anyone can sit on a chair, but only a king, only a sovereign ruler with authority sits on a throne. The Lord is sitting on his throne, and he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. That's what we see of God. And you know, Isaiah is not the only one in the Bible who saw God on his throne. 
Almost everyone in the Bible who had a vision of heaven or who were taken to heaven or who wrote about heaven in the Bible, every single one of them all talk about God being on his throne. Okay, we've got Micaiah, we've got Job, we've got David, the sons of Korah, Ethan the Ezraite, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, John, all had these visions of heaven and all saw God sitting on his throne. So we've got a theme here, God's on his throne, okay? And actually, if you read the book of Revelation, you know, the book of Revelation could have, you could easily rename it as the book of God's throne, because basically it just talks about God's throne and God being on his throne and the throne of God the whole way through. I mean, I think it mentions it like 35 times through the book of Revelation, talking about God's throne. God is on his throne. It's interesting. I heard, heard someone say this uh, a while back. They said, atheists believe there is no throne, no ultimate seat of authority that the universe must answer to. Humanists are different. Humanists believe there is a throne, but man sits on it. Whereas the Bible makes crystal clear that there's a throne in heaven and no fallen human being sits on it. But the Lord himself sits on it as the sovereign ruler of the entire universe. And that has always been the case and that always will be the case. No matter what you see in the news, no matter what's happening, no matter how you're feeling, that has always been the case and that always will be the case. And it's like God is saying here, Isaiah, don't worry about your dead king. You know, he may no longer be in his throne, but I am still on my throne. And that's all that matters. Amen? That is all that matters. Okay? And, you know, so I just think it's so relevant for us because we look out in our world and all the wars and all the crazy stuff that have all this kind of stuff. And I think this is really applicable to us. You know, Isaiah is looking at his day and thinking, gosh, everything has gone to pot. God. God's like, I'm still on my throne. I'm still in charge. You've got to trust me here. Trust me here, Isaiah. Still with me? Right. We're going to do a bit more, a bit more unearthing of this vision. Okay? It goes on to say that God is surrounded and worshipped by these fiery six-winged angels called seraphim. Now, if you Google seraphim and go to Google Images, you get some of the craziest images you've ever seen. I mean, I, I just think people aren't quite sure how to depict them. But basically, yeah, they're described as fiery angels with six wings. Pretty, I suppose, terrifying, really. And these seraphim proclaim that the whole earth is full of God's glory. And their voices, these seraphims, their voices are so powerful that it causes the 10 meter high bronze pillars that held up the temple portico to shake and they caused the temple to fill with smoke. That's just their voices of the seraphim cause that to happen. But despite the power in their voices, these fiery angels don't even dare to look at God. We read that they, they cover their feet with one set of wings and we, we, we believe this is so that they because they don't want to reveal any unclean bits of their body, like their feet. And then they, they, they cover their faces with another set of wings, and that's to shield their eyes from God's utter perfection. And then with the final set of wings, they fly. That's what we're told they do with their wings. It's interesting, the, the 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, anyone heard of him? 
Yes, Hillary Tan, straight up, big fan, yes. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this about the seraphim. He says, thus they have four wings for adoration and two for active energy. Four to conceal themselves, their feet and their eyes, and two with which to occupy themselves in service and flying. And he says this, we may learn from them that we shall serve God best when we are most deeply reverent and humbled in his presence. Veneration must be in larger proportion than vigor. Adoration must exceed activity. As Mary at Jesus' feet was preferred to Martha and her much serving, so much sacred reverence take the first place and energetic service follow in due course. So he's saying here, sacred reverence before God. That's always our starting point before we do anything else. That's the most important thing. Now, I don't know if you noticed, uh, a few months ago, uh, John Piper, the American pastor John Piper, ignited this huge debate on Twitter with this tweet, okay? Can we reassess whether Sunday coffee sipping in the sanctuary fits? Basically saying, is it okay for us to be drinking coffee in church or tea or coffee? Like, is that reverent? Now, those of you who have a cup of tea or coffee right now are like slowly putting it on the floor or, or like, or defiantly like drinking it in opposition to John Piper. Yeah. But it absolutely, I mean, this, I don't know if you, if you saw this a few months ago, uh, it absolutely blew up on Twitter. I mean, there were, there were so many responses. Some people were like, drinking coffee helps me to focus on the word, helps me to focus on the sermon. I need that caffeine to help me. Like, okay, fine. Other people are like, well, you know, tea and coffee, that's hospitality. That's biblical. That's a good thing to do. Then you get a whole lot of responses. I mean, this is America, right? A whole lot of responses along the lines of, how dare he think he can stop me drinking coffee in church? You know, you know, you know when Americans get on their rights, you know, I've got a right to have a gun. I've got a right to drink coffee in church. How dare he tell me otherwise? You know, there was a lot of that kind of chat. Um, but it, it, was a, it was a kind of a, a strange kind of response to the tweet, really. But whatever you think of the issue, the reality is John Piper's concern isn't about coffee, but about whether we're approaching the Lord with the reverence that he deserves? And that is a good question for us to be asking. Now, for all my chat about this being a clear picture of who God is this morning, um, I don't know if you noticed, but Isaiah doesn't actually describe what God looks like in the vision. Did you notice that? Well, you, you notice you didn't see it now. And he describes God's throne. He describes God's robe. He describes God's angels, but he doesn't dare describe God himself. He simply tells us that the angels cried out in Hebrew that God was Kadesh, 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 meaning holy, holy, holy. Now, saying this three times, this could be Isaiah's way of saying God is here in three persons. You know, a holy for God the Father, a holy for God the Son, a holy for God the Holy Spirit. That, that could be what's going on here. After all, in verse 8, God asks, who will go for us? You know, like, okay, that sounds like there's more than one person there. Not me, but us. And on top of that, John chapter 12 and Acts chapter 28 both tell us 
that Isaiah in this vision saw not just the Father, but he also saw the Son and he also saw the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they tell us that. So that could be why there's three holies, but there's more to it than that. The three holies means more than this, okay? Okay, now this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but you're all coming down this with me whether you like it or not, okay? So when two kings, 25, wanted to describe pure gold in Hebrew, what it did was it simply said gold, gold. Because back then, that's how you described something as extremely something. You just said it twice, okay? Gold, gold means pure gold or something that's extremely something. You say it twice, okay? That's what you would do. So it seems there's something of that going on here. But when the angels look for a way to describe God's absolute pure holiness, they have to invent an even stronger way of saying it than this. So they don't describe God as just Kodesh, holy. They don't even say he's Kodesh, Kodesh, pure holiness. They say he is Kodesh, 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 which is far holier than any human language can ever describe. That's what they're saying God is like here. That's who our God is. No matter how we're feeling, no matter what's happening in the world, that's who God is. Okay, we've got who God is nailed. So let's move on to who we are. Yeah, we all good? We all happy? Nothing else to learn on that? We know everything about... Yeah, let's move on. I mean, let's move on to who, who we are. I, uh, I used to be the youth worker at a, uh, at a church. Um, <laughs> I was thinking of a profound thing to say, and there's nothing there. It was just, yeah, I was a church youth worker with a youth group, and um, I remember one time asking a question to the young people, and it was, uh, it was this. It was like, if you, could, if you get to heaven and you could ask God one question and you knew he would answer it, what would you ask? And some kid was like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I'm like, oh, come on, give me something serious. I mean, oh, well, I would ask that. I'm like, oh, fine, yeah, but what would you ask next, all right? Um, and then some other kid was like, uh, why is there so much suffering in the world? I think I'd ask that. And then some of the kids said, actually, I'd make it even more personal like that. I'd, I'd want to ask God, you know, why did my gran have to die, die from cancer and so much pain? I'll be my question. Um, and then someone else said, oh, you know, when is Jesus going to return? I was like, oh, that's question to ask as well. And then, and then one of the other youth leaders, this so often happens in youth work, you know, one of the other youth leaders doesn't play ball and like kind of goes rogue. Um, and the other, one of the other youth leaders was like, I don't think I'd ask any questions. And I was like, oh, come on, man, just go with me, roll with me. I don't, you know, I don't mind the kids causing problems, but, you know, so he said, I don't think I'd ask any questions. All the kids were like, why, why would you not ask any questions? He says, because I'd be standing in front of God and my jaw would be on the floor. And they're like, ooh, that's profound. He says, yeah, I'd be in awe. I'd be possibly quite conscious of my sinfulness and who I am and what I've done wrong in life. And that's why I wouldn't be asking any questions. And all the kids were like, oh, yeah, fair point, actually. That's, that's good. And I, I was like, okay, that is actually a good point. But that's kind of what happens here in Isaiah, isn't it? You know, Isaiah is before God, and he's not there with his list of, God, I've actually got 15 questions I'd like to ask you. Number one, he's like, whoa, it's God. You know, his, his immediate reaction to this vision of the Lord is not like encouragement, not get my list out. It's like, it's, it, and it's not even joy, it's despair. Like, he's immediately convicted of his sinfulness. He's like, woe to me, I'm ruined. 
You know, I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And, and some translations say that he's, he's undone um, or he's ruined. And you know, I think when we get to that place, when we're ruined or undone before God, that's not actually a bad place to be. You know, it might not feel nice, but it's not actually a bad place to be because sometimes it's precisely there that we need to get to before God uses us. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says again, he says, God will never do anything with us till he has first of all undone us. When we're doing stuff on our own strength, you know, hey, God stands back. When we're, when we're done, we're like, God, I, I have nothing left. You've just completely done. God steps in and God starts to use us. It's often in that place where God meets us with what we need, which is what happens right here with Isaiah. Like Isaiah is in such distress that, uh, I mean, whether one of the angels feels sorry for him, I don't know, but one of the angels flies to the altar in the middle of the temple courtyard and, and takes one of the burning coals and touches Isaiah's mouth with it. Now, we always think, oh, that's a nice image. But, man, it would have stung like crazy. I mean, this is a burning coal. I mean, he would have a scar on his lip. I mean, it would be, you know, he knew about it. This was like, oh, this is a nice symbol. No, it would have stung. And then the angel says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, after Isaiah is convicted of his sin, what God does is he cleanses him of his sin through the coal. And this all is a foreshadow. This is a, a pointer to what happens when we come to Christ. You know, we're convicted of our sin, aren't we? We feel bad about it. Oh, I've done this. And then God takes away our guilt and he cleanses us, not through a coal, but through the blood of Jesus. That's what he does. We don't let, get left sitting there in the despair of our sin. No, we get cleansed of it. Isaiah then immediately volunteers to use his scarred and wounded lips to speak God's message of forgiveness. And he wants to tell his people what he's seen. He wants to tell his people that God is holy and he's bigger than they think. And he wants to tell them that he can make them holy too. He's like, he's like right, I want to go. He's passionate. He's excited. He's like, yes, he wants to tell people. God says, okay, Isaiah, you can speak. You can tell people about this. But by the way, just a bit of foreknowledge, they're not going to listen at all. But still do it. But they're not going to listen at all. And I think, like, I think that's a lesson for all of us. We, we need to be prepared for that reaction. We need to not just be like, oh, it's not effective. I'll not do it. Sometimes God said, no, I want you to speak. They won't listen, but I want you to speak. I want you to share. They won't listen, but I want you to share. Because there's purpose in that. There is a reason to do that. And we see that here in this passage. You know, in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, all four of them, and whenever all the Gospels quote something or say something, you have to sit up and listen. All four of them quote verses 9 and 10 of this passage, which is basically them saying, and 9 and 10 is basically where God says, look, the people aren't going to listen. And all four of the Gospels quote that, and they quote that to explain that, you know what, the people didn't listen to Isaiah's message, and they're not going to listen to Jesus' message. The world rejected Isaiah's message, and they're going to reject 
Jesus' message. That's, that's why they quote it. And then Acts quotes the quote, okay? I'm sorry, that's confusing. Acts quotes the quote from the gospel that's quoted from Isaiah. Do you follow that? Okay, go check it out. And when you get a Bible, and it's a Bible verse that's quoted a quote of a quote, then you're in special territory. Yes, but basically what Acts is saying, yeah, they, they didn't listen to Isaiah, they didn't listen to Jesus, and they might not listen to you either. That's what it's going to be like. You're going to be rejected. They're going to reject their words. They're going to hate our words of life. Even so, even, even so God says all that, God still asks, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he wants us, despite all that he said, he wants us, just like Isaiah to say, said, he wants us to say, here am I, send me. Even though we know what we're going to get, here am I, send me. But it's not all doom and gloom for Isaiah, okay? Ready for some good news? No, I won't give it if you're not ready for it. Ready for some good? You're ready. Becca's ready. Jamie's ready. He murmured. He's ready. Um, yes. God promises, this is where it gets, it gets interesting. So God promises they're not going to listen to you, but something is going to happen as a result of that. God, God says, promises that if Isaiah faithfully prophesies, even though people aren't going to listen to his words, his words are going to do something different. What they're going to do is they're going to clear the ground, like you'd clear a forest, they're going to clear the ground for a new shoot to grow. And we know from the rest of, of Isaiah that the nation of Judah would reject Isaiah's preaching and that they would face judgment for its sin. The nation would be, would be chopped down like a tree. It would be carried off into captivity. But if you read the rest of Isaiah, it says, but out of the stump, a shoot will grow. And Isaiah's job is to clear, clear the forest so the new shoot can grow. Isaiah 11 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of the tribe of Judah, God of David, ancestor of Jesus. A shoot will come up from the, the stump of Jesse. And through that shoot, salvation will come. And I think the lesson for us here is that sometimes we can share and it's rejected, but God can still have a bigger purpose for that sharing, just like we have here with Isaiah. So let's not get discouraged. We share with a friend or a family member and it goes nowhere. Never know how God's going to use that in a way that's completely beyond our mind. Almost done, all right? Almost done. Now, when we see the, the vast gap this morning between who God is and who we are, like, it can be easy to get a bit down. You know, you leave here this morning, yeah, God is amazing. I am awful. Um, you know, and you can kind of, it's easy to walk out of here a little bit like, oh, head down a little bit. It can be easy to walk out of here thinking that our primary identity is a sinner, that's what I am, more than anything. I am a sinner. I am someone who falls short. Now, we are all sinners. We, are, we do all make mistakes. We do all sin. That's true. But that is not our primary identity. And I want to make sure that we leave here with that clear this morning. 
our primary identity as believers is that we are loved by God. Theologian Jonathan Pennington says, is sinfulness the first word or primary descriptor of humanity from God's perspective? No, he says. Sinful is an appropriate second word to say about humanity. The first word according to the Bible's vision should instead be loved or even beautiful. That is who we are. More than anything else, we are loved by God. And when we look at all that God went through to bring us salvation, just how much it cost him, it only makes sense when we see his intense love for us. See, when we look to Jesus, we are definitely confronted with our sinfulness. But what shines even brighter is his incredible love for us, demonstrated most perfectly at the cross. Amen? So God is huge. He is holy. He is awesome. And we are his beloved. We are those who he loves. We are his beautiful, the ones who he has redeemed from sinfulness so that we can, he can bring to be with ourselves. I know you've all heard that before, but it's just such a good thing to blow out the, the clouds and be reminded of again. Amen? Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media, and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode. From our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays, and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us, or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.